It's like I'm speaking in tongue. That's right. You're doing a show with a chimp. That's all it is. Welcome to episode 18 of On Taking Pictures. 18 episodes. Mm. Almost 20. It's exciting. You know, I, almost, I almost just said we're almost in double digits. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> Need some more coffee? A little bit. Okay. Uh, this is a weekly podcast. We're talking about the art, the science, a uh, little bit of philosophy, a little bit of ephemera. I like that word. Of uh, making images. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Sidoris from FadedAndBlurred.com, and with me is Bill Wadman, fancy New York <laughs> photographer. I'll take it. Today I'll yeah. take it. Yeah. You know, okay. Uh, so, some, uh, some club in Poland wants to print out a couple of my motion pictures really giant and put them on the wall of some, I'm assuming. In a club. Yeah, in a club. So like an atmosphere, ambiance kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, so I told them it'll be 1.6 million, uh, and I'm waiting for like them to Rupert, get back to so, me. Right? Or yeah, whatever, exactly. <laughs> what is it they use? Yeah, I don't know what they use. <laughs> uh, they said that that was a lot, and I just scoffed. And yeah, no. Did was, you did you use that? I scoffed. Yeah, oh. I scoff at you, sir. Yeah, via email. <laughs> it's good stuff. Yeah, um, that's kind of cool. When when will you find out? Uh, I guess when they email me back. That's oh, so that's the to very be the beginnings of the of the negotiation. Uh, it's a back and forth thing. You know, it's amazing how many of these things start and then never get anywhere. Oh, like hey, we'd like to use X, and then you never. Yeah, get back. and then you say something like, "Okay, well, do you have a budget in mind?" Because you know, um, and they don't come back, or they you know come back and ask the same question again without answering the first question. You're like, "All right, look, if we're just going to run around in circles, why are we doing this?" That's got to be kind of frustrating. I would I would imagine that happens to a number of of photographers, and it's you kind of you get your hopes up, and then I mean, nothing. Oh, I, I'd say that probably two thirds of inquiries like that just never lead to anything. Really, that many? Yeah, I mean, in in recent time, yes. Wow. Um, although sometimes they go really easily. I mean, I I shot a sort of a hero of mine a few years ago, and then like a week ago. His people called me up and asked if you know they could buy one of the pictures as his new author photo, and I was like, "Yeah, sure," you know. Yeah. And the whole deal was done, retouched, money in my account by the end of the day. Wow. Yeah, so sometimes it's like that. Now, like when you when you do something for this club, for example, is is it an outright they buy the rights to it? Well, here, yeah, or is here, it- here's the problem with them is that uh, they want to print two of them huge, like. Over two meters on the long side. Oh wow! So like seven inch, seven foot by five foot kind of print. Right. And they want to print two of them, two of the same images that big for the club. And they want me to send them the file, and they're going to print them over there. Because if you had something like that printed over here, it would cost thousand dollars a print. You know. Right. Um, and then shipping them and whatever it is, and let's say that their budget is three thousand dollars. Well, then. That's over half of the budget taken in just printing costs plus shipping. Plus they get busted up in the process of shipping. You know, who knows? Whatever it is, right? But do you, do you treat it just as they're just buying a large print or do you treat it as almost like a, a licensing of a stock image type of a thing? Well, see, do- that's the thing about this is that this is sort of a weird hybrid of between those two things. You know? mm. uh, it's a problem of the digital age. 
the fact that I could send them the full res file to print there makes it almost more of a licensing than it is prints. But at the same time, I don't really want to send them the full res image because then they have the full res image. Sure. They can start printing posters and selling them. Exactly. But even if you, you know, put that in the contract and make it all, you know, as tight as you can, am I really going to go up against some Polish company and intellectual property internationally? Like, how am I ever going to be able to do that? Right. Right, Right. I mean, it would cost me tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees. So you get into these sort of gray areas where you have to trust. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I have sent uh, full res or nearly full res copies of the motion pictures to magazines and stuff. And theoretically, those files are somewhere on a server. And I have to trust that no one's taking those and selling prints, you know. Um, It's weird being, I would imagine, I mean, I've talked to a number of of photographers, but and it seems that as the technology progresses, it gets stranger and stranger to the point of being almost surreal in how you have to think about protecting your work. Yeah. And I mean, there are people on one end of the spectrum who say, don't bother, Mm -hmm. (laughs) give your work away. (laughs) I personally do not subscribe to that because, you know, as much as I love doing this show, I don't want my job to be a full-time like teacher or pundit. I want to actually shoot. Right. For a living. Right. I want to get paid for doing my craft, not talk about doing my craft. You know? Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting, yeah, it's, it's very interesting going forward. I mean, there's money to be made in photography, but more and more it's in event and weddings and that kind of stuff. And even there, those people are getting squeezed by the guy who bought a camera yesterday and wants to start taking pictures at weddings, you know? So it's like, sure, you know, but there was that thing going around on Facebook the other day. Um, uh, it was like a, a couple, like in their wedding dress or whatever it is. And they're looking at their pictures or whatever. And they said, we're so glad we, we got the lowest priced wedding photographer. And then below it said, said no one ever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, you get what you pay for a lot of times, you know, I mean, there, there are okay. Good deals or bad deals, but like, I think as a general rule that, you know, it's funny. I have a thing in the notes here. I'm going to actually move it up because this is sort of fitting. I, I got an email from some woman named Sarah last night and the email said, hello, my name is Sarah, blah, blah, blah. I recently saw your photography on ASMP.org and I was really interested in the photos you took. I'm an actor looking for a headshots updated. I'm looking for someone who has the ability to make them look really unique. I was wondering if you'd be willing to do TFP or TFCD. It's like, okay, so you want me to take your headshots for free. Right. Uh, I'm up and coming and have been asked to be represented by so-and-so, so the photos would be on their website for everyone to view. I'd really like the opportunity to work with you Looking forward to hearing from you. Regards, blah blah blah. Okay, so not only is it like, are you kidding me? But on top of that, she cc'd one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight photographers. Wow! Not blind cc'd. Just, just here's here's who else. Oh wow! Straight. And in fact, one of them is a friend of mine. Huh? That's so funny. it's it's so one guy on the list writes back and he says cc'ing everybody. Like reply all. Sarah, perhaps if you're trying to charm photographers into shooting pictures of you for free by complimenting them, you should use BCC to send your emails so we don't all see how many of us you think are really unique. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was like, ah, see, that's just, and, and, but you get that a lot. You get this kind of stuff. It's like, well, 
do you do what you do for free? So, right. right. It, you know, sorry. I mean, would you go to a dentist and go, hey, if you do this crown for me, I promise I'll tell all of my friends about you. Yeah, that's, a, that's pretty much what it is. Yeah. Um, and no one, is, no one ever thinks, you know, no one would ever do that for a lawyer or a doctor or an right. engineer or an architect. Or, hey, can you fix my transmission for free? And I, I promise I'll tell people about you. Yeah, I'll, I'll let everyone know that you did a really... I'll, I'm going to be driving the car around, so they're going to see me driving. <laughs> so everybody's going to see it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know what? They'd, they'd see your pictures if you paid me, too. So how about you just pay me? Right. And and have them seeing the pictures as a bonus. You know? right. Or right, right, right. It's just ridiculous. But this is the kind of stuff you get. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a constant battle. So the people in Poland, who knows? Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. But I mean, you get these kinds of things all the time. Uh, I got another one asking for the, the, some speaking engagement place wanted to buy pictures of somebody I shot a couple of years ago, and you know, trying to quote. They want to use it on TV and in print and on on the web, like pretty much unlimited for a year. And I was like, okay, well, that's not going to be fifty dollars in a ice cream cone, you know? Right. Right. Um, so we'll see if they get back to me. But it's 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 a very very difficult thing. Um, I remember uh, a couple of years ago, I shot the CEO of some big giant, like multi-billion dollar energy company out in New Jersey. And, uh, I shot it for some magazine. So it's like some editorial gig and the, the people at the PR firm that run at the energy company liked the picture of the CEO and they wanted to use it on ads on and, like print ads or TV ads or what? Uh, print ads. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what I quoted them, you know, not, not as much as it should have been considering they wanted to basically buy out this picture and use it for wherever they wanted to. Right. And they came back to me and they were like, Oh, that's crazy. Like we can have some other photographer reshoot it for 500 bucks. And I was like, okay, well, if you find a photographer that will reshoot that photo for you for $500, as well as include the rights for you to use it on advertising for the next, for in perpetuity on anything you want, you found a giant sucker, right? You know, like you, you found the kind of person that's like putting this business in the ground essentially. Um, well, uh, well, there was a, a thing on Facebook the other day, uh, a wedding photographer licensed an image for like $18,000, one yep. image. Yeah. And it did wasn't you, actually, you a, see that? it wasn't a really good picture either. Well, yeah. You know, quality of the photo, notwithstanding, I, I, I just thought it was amazing that, yeah. that, this one image uh, was licensed for that. And I think it, advertising it usage is a lot of money a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the people come in and they're just like lowballing it to basically giving stuff away, it's like, what are you doing, dude? You're ruining it for everybody. Right. Now you're making them think that they can get stuff for 50 bucks and right. a box of right. chocolates. And it's like, well, I can't live on $50, you know? Um, doing what I do is expensive. I was talking to a friend of mine who's sort of just getting into the biz and, you know, they, they, they haven't been, uh, you know, they like, uh, backups and software and all this kind of stuff. It's like, that stuff's expensive. Sure. And that's why things, people charge what they charge because doing this the right way is expensive. Right. Um, Well, I mean, let's say, you know, beyond the, the, the gear itself, uh, you know, to your point, let's say you buy a Drobo or some sort of backup yep. solution. You buy a copy of, of Photoshop. If you're yep. doing video, you buy Premiere. Yep. Well, there's, you know, $1,500 right there. Right. Oh, yeah. 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 
Um, so, I mean, it's, and those aren't things you need necessarily, you know what I mean? Like you could get away with last year's Photoshop or whatever it is, but, but, but there, or, or you don't really need a backup because, oh, it's all on your hard drive. It's like, yeah, but what happens when you're working on that wedding shoot and then all of a sudden your hard drive crashes and you lose somebody's wedding photos? Right. You know, like that's, that's why you're going to the professional because the professional is not going to lose your photos because they have three backups of it. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, that's, but I mean, that's the sort of implied difference. Sure. Um, it's, it's, it's very, it's interesting stuff. Uh, and it's, it's tricky. How do we get on this in the first place? Cause I'm fancy. Because you're fancy. Mm. It's how we get on most things is because you're fancy. Uh, uh, Hey, why don't you talk about Rick's email uh, about, Rick about striker? Okay. Uh, so yeah, we got a couple emails about last week's, uh, we were talking about Walker Evans and Dorothea Lang and how I thought that Walker Evans's photos were much more authentic than Dorothea Lang's photos, which and I'm f- not so sure, which I found melodramatic, which I find melodramatic and, yeah. and, and posed. And basically, uh, well, there's two things here. Uh, uh, Rick Paulson wrote in, um, talking about how there was a guy named Roy Stryker who was behind the whole, uh, photography thing with the FSA. Um, right. He, he's the one who wanted to put a face on it. Right. And so he hired all of these photographers to go out and, and, and take these pictures and to use them for, you know, essentially propaganda purposes for stuff during the depression. I mean, sure. that, that's what all of these pictures are for. Yeah. It was um, look, look how, look how bad off people are. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing is that we also got an email yesterday from another listener, uh, who basically said, uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, you could believe that, but in actuality, uh, both Walker and Dorothea both created these things, you know, that Walker Evans's uh, interior of the Grudger house in Hale County, Alabama, which appeared in his collection, uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, la, 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 la. let's see, where is it? Uh, the realism was deliberate, calculated and highly stylized that these people were essentially moving stuff around, manipulating it, staging the photos, even the still lifes, the Walker still lifes were staged essentially. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing to remember about all of these pictures from that period is that they, they were propaganda. Sure. And they were taken from a specific viewpoint. Exactly. Uh, and, uh, and so Ken who wrote this other email, uh, basically said, uh, that, um, Errol Morris, who, uh, who did, uh, I think he's the guy who did fog of war, isn't he? You know, that documentary never saw it. Oh, really? Mm. Uh, it's a documentary about, uh, here, let me see if I'm right. I might be. Oh yeah, you are. Yeah. 2003. Oh, this is the The one about McNamara. Yeah. Did you ever see that? No, I didn't see it. It's amazing. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Okay. Um, Watch it. So he's, he's Errol Morris is kind of crazy, but he writes a lot of stuff for the New York times and stuff where he talks about, uh, all kinds of, um, like opinion based stuff about art. He's got a whole book talking about this stuff, which I have on my thing, which I, I read a little bit of, and then I kind of get ground down by it. And then I read a little more. He did a thing for the New York times the other day of saying how Baskerfield is the most trustworthy font for like historical facts. Really? Yeah. It was, it, I'll have to find the link to that one too. Um, <laughs> that, that, that essentially like people trust things written in Baskerfield more than they trust 
other huh. things. Anyway, th- the point of this is um, wait Baskerville. Baskerville, rather. Sorry, my bad. Huh. I, was, I was reading really that's else. a trustworthy font. Yeah, apparently because it goes back to sort of it's sort of uh, colonial looking. Yeah, I trust Helvetica, Mister. Yeah, well, most people don't, <laughs> and that is why you fail. Um, <laughs> so uh, anyway, the point is is that uh, Langs and Evans were both be manipulating. I think perhaps you could argue that in if 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 you're taking my view of the whole thing that maybe. Evans was more successful <laughs> in faking it. I don't know. Okay. I still think that the, the Evans portraits, like that one of the woman against the side of the barn or whatever it is, you know, the, mm-hmm. I still think that shot is amazing. I, that's like one of my favorites. See, I, I, I like, I prefer Lang. Well, you know what? You live <laughs> on the West coast where up is down and down is up. Uh, interesting. Dogs and cats living, living together. together. <laughs> uh, That's hysteria. Interestingly enough, though, uh, all of the stuff that Roy Stryker um, ended up getting all of these pictures pushed to uh, the Library of Congress, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty interesting. Um, yeah, they uh, disbanded the FSA. The holdings of the FSA photographic unit were transferred to the Library of Congress. Uh, there was a picture that... Evans took, I think as part of the FSA thing, which was that shot of the photo studio, you know, where it just says studio and it's all the like little passport photo looking things. Yeah. 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 I'm pretty sure that that is in the, uh, uh, basically paid for by the government. Right. Right. But doesn't, I thought Getty owned that. Well, see, here's the, that's the weird thing is that it's at the library of Congress, but you can't download the full res version. And I'm kind of like, you know what? If my tax dollars paid for it, right? I mean, that's the whole I should thing. Be able that's to why you can the full use version. like Dorothea Lang's work is because it, the copyright can't be held by the government, right? Yeah, but for some reason that pictures of the Library of Congress, but you can't. It's all very shady. So I don't know exactly how that works, and I guess somebody hmm. else could explain it to me. But um, it's just interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, if 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 you do want to read uh, a very good biography of Dorothea Lang. Uh, Linda Gordon wrote one that, that Nikki and I both read uh, called A Life Beyond Limits. Uh, maybe we can put the, the link in the show notes. Okay. It's a pretty comprehensive. It's got a lot of photographs in it, um, but it, it really kind of goes into detail about her life and how she got started and why she got started and, and, and the sort of aftermath of her career. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I guess the point of this is that the FSA stuff – uh, we're, we're both right and we're both wrong, Jeffrey. Fine. Would you rather that there's a, a, <laughs> a more final decision? No, I think it's fine. I, you know, what I do think is interesting is that that period uh, of, of such an enormous government-sponsored photographic project. That made stuff that's still changing the world today? That, Imagine that the government sponsoring art that is good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that. But but the fact that it will never happen again. That that. Um, that yeah, I maybe. don't think that that could happen again on on the same level. I think it would be privatized. Well, I I think, I it, think it happened during World War II, like them making propaganda war movies and things, right? Sure. And, sure. And I think that, yeah, you might be right. I, I, the privatization is one thing. I think the internet is another thing. I think it's harder mm-hmm. for a government to 
define an entire movement um, by a single photograph or two in every paper in New York City or in the world, right. rather. Right. Speaking of which, there, um, I wanted to see the uh, front page of the New York Times the day after uh, Neil Armstrong died. Oh, did they have something? Well, on the amazing, Sunday Times, it just- it, well, the, the, I was wondering what the headline would be because um, the original uh, moon landing headline uh, was, I think it still is. Ending. I wonder if 9-11 was bigger than it. Um, but the, the New York Times, the point size of the type and the headline on the New York Times on uh, July 20th, 20th or 21st, or whatever it was, uh, 1969, was the largest type ever. It was, hmm. it was men walk on moon. And then underneath it said, astronauts land on plane, collect rocks, plant flag. Nice. Um, and then it, it talks, and then the whole front page is just things about this, right? Um, which is just fascinating. But apparently, so I was kind of thinking on the, on the day that the guy dies, I wonder what the headline will be. And I forget exactly what it was, but it was something along the lines of, you know, great step, you know, Armstrong, uh, you know, dies at whatever. Like it was some kind of like normal thing, but it was like the, one of the main headlines. Hmm. Um, but I wanted to see it and I don't get the New York times. I mean, I read it online, but I don't, I don't get it on paper. You don't get the print copy, but my neighbor does. So we were coming home from the gym on Sunday morning and it was out on our doorstep. So I pulled it out of the bag and opened it up. And then I like put the, put it back in the bag when I was done and like put it on the stairs for him to grab, uh, in the apartment building. And it was fascinating to me cause I was like, that is such a strange thing. Cause I haven't had a newspaper delivery in I can't even remember the last. I don't think I ever had newspaper delivered. I mean, when I was a kid, we did, I guess. But that went in a mailbox. Just the idea that somebody is delivering dead wood to my doorstep manually, physically, for me to pick up, to read stuff that is hours old, is just a very strange... I mean, and I know a lot of people like it, and they like the paper or whatever, but I just found that that's fascinating, that that is just going to be this weird anachronistic that it, strange that it's still a practice that it's yeah, still being done like that, mm-hmm. yeah that it just feels so out of place in the modern world mm-hmm. you know um and, and i want the new york times to make money so that they can continue having reporters out on on the street and writing these things and i love the new york times but uh it just the physical newspaper just kind of blows my mind that that's still a thing it's it feels so 19th century well it's not it's certainly not as as popular or prevalent as as we've seen with profits and newspapers going under and, and being absorbed by, by larger papers. Yeah. Um, I mean, profits have plummeted in print versions and that's why, you know, it's one of the reasons why everybody's going online. Yeah. But I just, I just find that it's fascinating that it's still there, you know, that I mm-hmm. can still get this. Um, kind of cool. Yeah. Um, which gets us to the Neil Armstrong thing, which kind of makes me sad. Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, it, it was fairly old. Yes, he was 82. Um, Here's the thing that kills me, though. When he landed on the moon, he was 38. Mm -hmm. I'm 37. Yeah, and what have you done? You're like 59. (laughs) What are you? Um, Yes, I'm 72. And... uh, You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, it's it's very odd to think about that. That kind of stuff is just kind of mind-boggling to me. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So yeah, there are some great photo uh, essays and photo projects that have been put up. Yeah, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna put some links in the show notes though. Uh, the Atlantic is in there, um, and then some links to some NASA pages that have uh, you can see. The cool thing about a lot of these space photos is that you can go get super high res scans of them. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, put up put up a link to uh, that documentary you said I should watch that I haven't seen. Ah, uh, in the, the dark sh- in, in the, the shadow, shadow of the moon. Of the moon. Yeah. Put that in there. And we also need to put a thing to um, the Michael Light book, uh, which I think is called Full Moon. Yeah, for those of you who haven't figured this out yet, Bill is a huge space nerd. Giant, giant space nut, especially <laughs> especially Apollo. I, yeah. I know everything, and I've met a bunch of them, and they're, yeah. Um, and I, I thought it would be kind of fun. We're not usually gear people uh, talking on this show. But I thought it would be kind of fun to talk a little bit about how they took their pictures. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, there were some pretty heavy modifications that needed to be made to these cameras, yes? Yeah, so basically um, during Mercury, they wanted to take a camera up into space. So Mercury was like the single man stuff in the early 60s, 62, 63. And one of the guys, I forget which one, um, took up – a camera with him. And I, I think actually he brought a Leica and then somebody brought a Hasselblad up. Basically they just went to a camera store and said, bought a camera like off the shelf, a 550 C mm-hmm. an unmodified 550 C was, was first used on the last two Mercury one man missions in 1962 and 63. And it worked so well for them that they used Hasselblad's in somewhat to this day, right? I mean, now they're starting to use, I think, these like Nikon D3s, I think, D3Xs on the spa- last space shuttle missions. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- but they were using these Hasselblads with Zeiss glass up until very, very recently. Um, and so what they started doing is uh, they started modify. they had to modify these for the Apollo missions because they knew eventually these things would be outside. So you in, in a vacuum with the temperature differences. So what they had to do was remove any sort of oil lubricants and replace them with solid lubricants. So they wouldn't, uh, boil off into space and like muck up the lens and that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 So they Hasselblad actually hand built some cameras, like hand modified some cameras just for NASA and the ones that they used on the moon, you'll see the pictures of, of the Apollo astronauts and they basically have a Hasselblad 500 mounted to their chest and they can take it off. It's like on this like little like plate that it slides onto so that they could walk around with the camera face forward like as a second, a third hand essentially. And mm-hmm. they could reach down and, and they like put a like almost sort of a gun trigger kind of thing to, to fire off the shots or they can like pull it off their chest and aim at it kind of stuff. And they didn't use like a real viewfinder. They just sort of had this weird, uh, you know, it was more of like a, a general guide, right? Cause they were using sure. generally more wide angle lenses on the surface. Um, uh, usually like just a normal lens. So like an 80 millimeter, uh, and were F2. these lenses just, were they fixed focus? Were they because since they didn't use any sort of viewfinder, right. did they well, did they, they just do a rangefinder type of approach? They actually they actually added because the Hasselblad have have like a big uh, the focusing ring is on the lens, of course, and and it's it's like this big chunky thing. So what they did because these guys had to work with gloves is they basically uh, had a stick and a paddle coming off of it, okay. so they could just grab this paddle and s- turn it back and forth to get uh, focus right. But I mean, a lot of the times they just sort of did a hyperfocal thing. You know mm-hmm. how that works? Mm-hmm. So 
for those of do- who have, those of you who don't know, if you you could stop down a lens to say f eight or f eleven or f sixteen, um, and then if you have these lenses that actually have uh, a guide for the aperture or uh, for the focus on them, where it tells you you know if you're at two meters, one meter, infinity, you know this right. this whole this slide. should be in focus within right. this range. Generally, on there they also have a little thing that says like f eight, f eight, f eleven, f eleven, f twenty two, f twenty two, and it's sort of like these uh, uh, concentric brackets. And the idea is is that if you basically if you let's say you have the lens set to f eleven, great, and then you turn the the uh, focus until the bracket on the right is at infinity on the on the measuring stick, you know, on, on the on on the on the gauge. Then everything between infinity and wherever the left bracket is will be in pretty good, like usable focus. Right, right, right. Um, this is how a lot of people like Cartier-Bresson worked for years. They would just use slightly fast film. They would stop down to f, you know, they'd shoot at one twenty fifth of a second at f eight or f eleven. And they would just have it at a hyperfocal uh, uh, focus, and then they would just sort of lift the camera up to the iron and snap. They wouldn't worry about focusing because they weren't focusing. They were already stopped down, right? right. Um, so they did a lot of that on the moon. And they also knew for exposure, uh, they knew that, oh, in the sun, they did tests. You know what I mean? They could tell how much light was coming off the moon. So they knew, all right, he's, he's going into the sun, so he needs to stop down to this uh, aperture or open up if he's in the shadow and they would say for this next picture, open, you know, open up your aperture to F four and that kind of stuff. Um, which is kind of cool. And I mean, these guys knew this stuff, but they would actually even like call it up to them, like in their, in their, in their thing, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then <laughs> Kodak made custom films for them. So they had a super fine grained black and white 80, ISA, uh, 80 ASA speed, 80 speed film, black and white film, uh, two different ectochromes, which is what a lot of the pictures were taken. And they made a super light sensitive 16,000 ASA film. And this was in 1969. So could you imagine what was involved? You know? Um, so this is, this is the kind of stuff that, that people were doing. And so when they went on the surface, they put in this, this thing called a Rousseau plate in the camera in front of, uh, the the film that basically imprinted the pictures with those little X's. I don't know if you ever see sometimes you yeah, see the, the, little, the little grid marks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And those were used so that they could measure distances because there's all kinds of calculations you can do on how far away those are, and then you could figure out calibrate heights and distances in photos. That's why those are on there hmm. um, for like scientific use and for the geology and that kind of stuff. Um, I just thought it was because they look all sciency. No, no, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, so apparently the other thing they had to do was, uh, there's all static electricity that gets generated on the film surface because from it moving across the plate. Well, yes, because there's no humidity in the air, so there's nowhere for it to go. Mm -hmm. Um, so on the lunar surface, so they actually had, uh, basically they had, you could have sparks between the plate and the film, which would screw things up. Wow. And so the side of the plate that faced the film had a conductive layer on it and silver deposited on it to like pull away the charge. Wow. So they were like thinking about this stuff. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's totally cool. And then they, so they had these huge, they were, uh, uh, motor, uh, motor systems on the camera. So they didn't have to like turn, you know, like recycle the cameras. It was all motorized and they would have these big chunky, 
film backs on them that held a bunch of pictures. It depended on the film, right? But it would hold a lot more than your 12 shots that you would get. Sure. Um, no, they, they weren't loading and unloading film. They were just swapping out backs. They yeah? were swapping out backs. Yeah, they had okay. film backs that they were swapping out. And, and they left one of the Hasselblads on the moon because they brought two down to the moon, but they needed to get rid of every pound they could going back up. Wow. So, because they had a hundred pounds of rocks, right? Mm-hmm. So they so they uh, dropped out all this kind of stuff, like their backpacks and their boots and their uh, one of the cameras. They just threw Somebody it down on the go ground. Get that stuff. Yeah, it's just sitting there on the moon. So you you could go get it. Um, and they just took the film back. <laughs> yeah, now I could go get it. <laughs> one of the cool things that they did, which I which I just love the idea of is that in order to get the exposure right, because remember, this is film, right, that needs to get developed. Sure. So in order to get the exposure right, they the first shot of every roll was actually shot on Earth and included all kinds of test charts and stuff. Hmm. So that what they could do was bring the film back, cut the first frame off, run it through the 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 chemistry, and if that one came out all right then they would run the rest of it. Wow. But if there was an error, you know what I mean? If it was too yeah, yeah. hot or too cool, like they could, they could change the chemistry for the actual, uh, uh, final pictures. Now, and and since wait, a here's a camera still up there. Yeah. Is, is it possible that the back is still attached to it? Is there a, still a roll of undeveloped lunar film up there? Yeah, there might be actually, no, I think they, they, they brought all the film back. I don't even know if they used all the film. One other really cool fact is that when they first processed the film, the first thing they did is make copies of it. So they, so they processed the film and then they made like exact optical copies of all of the pictures that came back. Mm-hmm. The originals went in a vault, have never been seen. Really? All Still. those originals are untouched. Like they, wow. they processed them, they copied them, and then they put the originals away. Every picture you see is a scan off of the dupe. Wow. From what I understand. And so there's a guy named Michael Light, a photographer. I think he's out in California. Um, actually, I should look him up and go meet him if he's out there. Um, who does these crazy books? And one of the one of the projects he did was called Full Moon, and he got his hands on the originals, and he scanned them, and then did all the kinds of like eh, you might want to say that he did sort of artistic processing, but really he just like upped the contrast and did a little sharpening and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And he made a book called Full Moon, which is these are these gorgeous copies of all of these black and white and color. Uh, now, lunar are they noticeably different than what what the general public have seen in in the official quote unquote it, photos? They are sort of what you would imagine if you hear like a remastered recording. Okay, okay, right? like a visual remaster, right? Because this guy's an artist, right? And he's yeah. Um, so he got permission, scanned all these things at super high res, retouched them. And uh, has this book called Full Moon, which is gorgeous. Uh, this guy is like a monster when it comes to this stuff. It's like he's he's like almost super hyper technician, sort of a mastering engineer of photography is kind of how I think of him. Um, he also did another one called uh, 50, 100 Suns, I think it's called. And it's pictures from 100 different nuclear tests. Oh, wow. Which is actually pretty amazing, too. Um, anyway, the point of this is to say that, uh, the, you know, this film is still there and you can go onto the NASA websites and download huge copies of a lot of this stuff. And I actually, for a long time had like a 12 by 12 print of, of buzz on the moon that Neil shot, 
You know, the classic yeah. photo with the visor. I, I have that as my lock screen on my iPhone. Okay, you could you could theoretically download a high-res one of those, send it to Elko, and get a big poster of it printed up for 20 bucks. Wow. You know, which actually, I now that I think of it, I might do. I, I downloaded a picture, like, you know the when Hubble, they pointed Hubble up to a space in the sky that had, like, nothing in it? You know, right, they, and, and just let it go? Yeah, and just yep. wanted to see what was there if they just let the, you know, they did it for, like, two hours or something like that. And there were, you know, 5,000 galaxies and this like p- tiny pinprick of the sky that we thought nothing was. Um, it's called like the deep field something picture. It's like this famous Hubble picture. But, but isn't that the point is, is wherever you look is filled with stuff. Yeah, there's more. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so just, I, just when you think that there's yeah. the edge, you, you just keep going. Yeah. And, and, and I actually printed up big giant, two giant, like 32, 30 inch by 30 inch copies of this. And I've actually got one for me and one for my nephew, Bert, that I have to bring down to him. Nice. Um, anyway, so this is all to say that um, lunar photography and NASA, the photographs are, are really great. And you should uh, go look at them. And Neil Armstrong is good. Uh, and, and, and if you haven't, if you haven't uh, seen From the Earth to the Moon, the miniseries, the HBO miniseries, uh, it's really great. I have seen a, that. That's pretty fantastic. It's a uh, Tom Hanks uh, produced it and directed a couple of the episodes, and it's basically a sort of a reenactment of of the moon landings, which is is pretty great. So anyway, enough talk about space. Yeah, but I understand how you're over the moon about it. Ah, uh, I see what you did there. Huh? That was good. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's so wrong. Yeah. Hey, uh, Impossible Project, uh, reviving 8x10 Polaroid film. You saw this, yeah? I don't believe it. That's big, and, and that's it's, expensive. It's, Apparently, they, they... It's not just big, it's impossible. It is impossible. Uh, it's impossibly big. They, they got their hands on the last of Polaroid's machines yeah. for, for producing... 8x10. Uh, 8x10. Uh, $19 per slice. Uh, which actually isn't well beyond what it probably was when Polaroid was still making them. I mean, maybe it was $10 a slice when Polaroid was doing it, but it's not like an order of magnitude more expensive. Right. Um, the, I, okay. I admit that I am surprised by this. I'm surprised like that surprised in that there's a business model that can support it. I'm surprised that the impossible project is taking it on for a number of reasons. One, yes, I'm surprised that there are enough people with eight by 10 cameras that want to buy this film that it's, they think that it's worth doing this. I mean, wouldn't you think five by seven would have been a more fiscally four, four by five, probably. four by five. Okay. Yeah. Um, would, would probably be much more common. And you know, maybe I just say that cause I shoot four by five, but, um, 8x10 is, is really, really cool. In fact, but you know what? Here's the thing. If you click on that link, if that is a single photograph of those four images, the ones on the left are 8x10. The ones on the right are 4x5. So maybe they're going to make 4x5 too. No. Those ones How? on the right are 4x5. Because look, can they're they be? half the size of the ones on the left. Wait, which one are you looking at? The petapixel link? Yeah. No, they're not half. Yeah, they are. You could really? put two of those right next to each. Well, think about the actual area of the image, and it's 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 exactly half. Mm, interesting. Um, anyway, I, I used to love Polaroid, and and I used to shoot it for my uh, um, on my four x five. I still shoot 
that that Fuji, I'm doing that project, that one shot right, stuff right. on my blog. Um, now, if, if you're if you're scanning them, are you scanning the positive or the negative to get the best results? If you wanted to reproduce them, uh, I have been scanning the positive because sometimes it's weird with instant film. The paper negative that you get isn't always a negative of the positive. Does that make sense? No. Um, the the reason is because sometimes things sort of invert again uh, because the chemical gets pulled off when you, when you pull it apart. So things that were uh, black in the picture are still black on the, mm. does that make sense? Yeah. Almost like a solarization. Type yeah, thing. exactly. That's exactly yeah, what it is. Yeah. So you, so you can't really scan it and just say, Oh, and just invert in Photoshop. Um, oh, so you've got to scan the positive, which, but then you're not going to get the contrast that you would, will you? Well, you have to up the contrast in post. Like all the ones on my website, that's not exactly what the prints look like. I'm doing stuff to them. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a picture I took last Thursday of my friend Jasmine. And Jasmine's got this really incredible like foot-wide afro. She's got this incredible hair. Nice. And um, I, I sort of did the uh, uh, exposure for her, for her skin, because she's sort of got sort of like um, – like lighter sort of like chocolate milky kind of skin. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to get the exposure right for that. And, and I ended up forgetting that the 3200 speed film that I'm using is like way, way, way contrasty. Right. So, so it just crushed your blacks. It, yeah. Like the picture is like her face in a big field of black. Mm-hmm. And um, now are you lighting all of these the same just no, with your ring light? The one of her I lit with like an umbrella to the side just because I wanted to try something different with her. Mm-hmm. I probably sh- could have or should have done the ring light. Um, I wanted to try something different and mix it up a little bit. Uh, but what I did do is that I looked at the negative and there was some like detail of the curls of her hair in the negative. So I ended up scanning oh, really? the negative. That got lost in the positive though. Yeah, that weren't in the print. Huh. So I actually uh, went in and uh, scanned the negative and brought back some of her hair from the negative stuff. Oh, nice. Like enough just to give you a hint of where the hair is. So sure. that you, yeah. So the answer to your question is no, usually it's the positive, right? However, uh, Polaroid 55 was a whole different beast, um, which was a pull apart, peel apart uh, Polaroid film that gave you a positive image, but it also gave you an actual plastic negative right that out of the didn't camera experience the solarization that you're getting with the paper. Uh, that is the coolest stuff ever. It's an actual, like, you know, it's, it's like as if you brought film to the, to the place and got it developed. Wow. Um, it's thin, you know, they're kind of like, it's like you need to do a lot of posts to sort of bring the contrast back. Cause it's very, very thin negative, mm-hmm. but it, it gives you a negative that is monstrously detailed. Um, these are black and white four by five, and I've done scans where I calculated out how much info, you know, I said, okay, that's about as much as I'm getting out of this little chunk of it. If I scanned the whole thing like that, it's a 400 megapixel image. Wow. Yeah. It's like that kind of detail. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's, it's just amazing stuff. Now they stopped making that a few years ago. I still have three slices left. I found, um, which I really need to use cause it's going to go bad. It's going bad by the day, but at the same time, I don't want to use it on something that is just, you know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just to use. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's sort of a, a difficult, uh, difficult little conundrum. It's kind of like burning the candle at both ends. You know sure. what I mean? Uh, 
yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of kind of a weird thing. But so I'm very happy that the Impossible Project is making this stuff. I hope that they make some four by five. I highly doubt that they'll ever make anything like fifty Polaroid fifty five, just because it's just sort of like this weird. It was it was a very different product. But but is it more? I mean. Would you say it's more specialized than than eight by ten? I mean, would wouldn't there still be more people using? Uh, it, I mean, I think five? it's a, I think it's a special product, both because not that many people used it. By the way, I think Ansel Adams was one of the people who helped develop it. It's like that mm. kind of thing. I mean, when I say develop it, I don't mean in the photographic sense. I mean in the engineering sense. Sure. Um, I think the problem with it is that the manufacturing of it was very special compared to. Um, the regular peel apart things, with okay. just the paper negative. Similar to how maybe Kodachrome was special exactly. and different from yep. Ektachrome yeah. or anything else. And okay. I think that they, I think that they were originally manufacturing it in Massachusetts, in uh, in uh, like Worcester or somewhere up there is where the Polaroid plant was for Polaroid Fifty Five. And I remember when I first got my a box of it in two thousand eight, and on the box it had a, a discontinued sticker. Oh wow! Like a. I didn't you, know you'd had it that long. I've, I, I was using it in 2007. That's when I like discovered it. And then hmm. by 2008, it started going away. And then I bought up as much as I could. And then a couple of years ago for Christmas, Heather was going to buy me a box on, which used to cost like, what was it? Like 40 something dollars for 20. Now this is from a camera store no, maybe, or on no, eBay? It was like $80 for 20. I think it was like $4 a slice. Um, this would be from a camera store. Um, from a film place and they were going, this was a couple of years ago on eBay, a box, an expired box of 20 was going for like 300 and something dollars. Wow. Which is just like, okay, I like that film, but not that much. Here's a uh, Polaroid 55, 20 photos, buy it now price of 210. Oh, that's a good price. But this, that's expired from 2009, right? This is from yeah, January, yeah. 2009. It's like, okay. And who knows how it's been treated? Right. Exactly. Uh, see, you can see the right there on the picture is like that little yellow discontinued sticker. Mm. Uh, this product being discontinued, it says. Uh, but th- yeah, so this stuff is still out there. Ooh, somebody's got one for $68, a bid, and it's got 28 hours left. Ooh. Tempting, it. You're, t- you're tempted, aren't you? I am tempted. <laughs> Ma- Well-maintained in fridge for the entire life. There you go. Where is this guy? He's in Durango, Colorado. Oh, I might have to bid on that. May have to snipe that. Okay, I'll keep that open. <laughs> anyway, so Polar Fifty Five is really, really cool, and you use a uh, you use a chemical bath to clean the negative. Like the negative comes out with all kinds of gooey stuff on it, and you. you oh, really? So it's 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 even more for the end user to deal with, not not just wow, that's kind of cool. Yeah. So, so you, you've got to bathe it in this stuff. Yeah. To to it's I think it's a. Uh, uh, oh, the hell is it? Not potassium sulfide, but like something like that. It's like a there's a bath that you mix up. Wow, and it basically fixes it, and it gets it pulls away all the crap. If you didn't use this chemical, does it just continue to process, or does it eventually stop on its own? I just think it just has goo all over it, and it doesn't. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it doesn't fix. I don't know if it. I think it just fades if you don't. Hmm. Interesting. Fix it. Um, Like the 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 positives also fade. Wow, we have very very techie show today yeah we're, we're geary we're geary today well this is this is more workflow um the, the 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 prints the positives fade over time unless you put this like weird shellac goop on 
that they mm. give you. They give you like this bar of, of, of shellac that you pull across it and it basically like seals in the, the thing to keep it from the air. Um, on the negative. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and does it become, does it become stiff and brittle or does it, do the negatives, do they retain their flexibility? Uh, oh, the negatives retain their flexibility. It's like a negative. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll take a, you know, I'll, maybe I'll take a picture or something and put in the show notes, a uh, 55 negative, or I'm sure we could do a, um, do a little, uh, Polaroid 55 negative. Uh, I'm sure summer. Okay. Yeah. So we can look up on, you can look up on eBay and see all these Polaroid 55 negatives, but all the ones that you're seeing on here as examples are, uh, these are. These are not what they actually look like if you held them. I mean, obviously, these are all positive. So if you held them up to uh, a light, it's a li- it's really, really thin. Hmm. It's, it's weird. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, so the fact that Impossible Project is making this stuff is great. Uh, I, I just don't know how long that'll last or how right. good it is. Right. The other problem is that like the first few batches of the Impossible Project Polaroid 600 film were not very good. Oh, they really? They were expensive, and like people said that they were like – Really up and down, shot to shot, really inconsistent, mm-hmm. box to box. So it's kind of like, okay, well, yeah, it's sort of artsy and weird, and yeah, there's that unknown to it, but that's not what Edwin Land was going for when he made Polaroids. Right, right, right. right. He was going for, I want to be able to take a picture that is as good as the lab out on the out in the, the, the wilds, as it were. Right, consistently as yeah. good as the lab, yeah. Um, which is a whole other ball of wax. Uh, anyway, something to think about. Yeah. Hey, do you see this uh, this picture that Art Streber took of the the hundred for the hundredth anniversary of Paramount? I did. Now that this was a while ago, right? Uh, it, I, it may have been a while. Yeah, it was in June, maybe. Uh, I, or maybe the picture is from a while ago. But this F Stoppers website. You ever see this site? Yeah, it's a good site. Um, they they sort of got a behind the scenes look and how he did the lighting and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, no just, light stands, first of all, just C-stands. to get these people in in one room—that's pretty impressive. Yeah, and apparently they actually shot them all in the room. Although he did shoot it in three chunks, hmm. uh, with a with a big, you know, some sort of medium format big camera. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a Hasselblad H two with a Q one sixty back. Now, wow. okay, I'm just reading fifty seven pro photo heads. Yeah, to light this thing. Yeah, and now he had <laughs> them up. Sort of, you know what he did? He basically had them. Uh, up like you would light a theater, you know, like on rigs, on like okay, rigging. Sure. And sure. then he had uh, uh, pocket wizards popping it all. Mm. Um, so, you know what I mean? The, the actual scene probably looked a lot different than that. And I'm sure they composited together, not just left, right, middle, single shots, but I'm sure it's like, oh, let's take Harrison Ford from this one and whatever from that one. If you look at the full size one, we'll put the link in the show notes. If you look at the full size shot, it looks like there was a lot of post done, like in a okay. There's something go. There's stuff going on there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things they said is that he realized later that he had to put in uh, rim lights on the sides and stuff so the people would get separated from the black background. So right. he had to add all kinds of new stuff on top of it. Um, wow! And they actually had people come in and uh, stand in for all. The, he had stand-ins for everybody because they had to do the whole shot the whole thing in like 15 minutes or something. Um, so basically it had to be ready for a guy to walk in and just do it. Sure. Um, 
which is which is really cool. And I, I've I've never really had to work that way, you know. Um, that's like a whole other thing where you actually just have to uh, 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 just basically have it all ready to go. The person walks in, sits down, and you go click. That's the kind yeah. of thing you do with presidents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Well, I mean, you've got you're shooting Bill Clinton. You have four minutes with him by his schedule. Right. You have three different lighting setups already, all all perfect, with a different camera next to each one of them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, or you're or you're platon, and you just shoot him really close up, really wide, and call it a day. Exactly. But even he, he had his stuff set up waiting for him. You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, apparently, he shot sixty three frames. That's all he got off. Wow. Uh, all 116 people were on the stage at the same time. Uh, nobody was added in post, but I'm sure they, you know, put it together in post. Anyway, it's a, a really cool uh, little video, making of video and the whole thing. And, and anybody who's interested in these big giant shoots should uh, go take a look. I think that that's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it's neat. Yeah. You and wanna- like I say, just the, 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 the talent and, you know, th- think of all of the movies that you've ever seen in your life and – chances are that several people involved with those are on this stage at one time. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them are really old. Like Mickey Rooney is in there. All kinds of people are in there. Yeah. Robert Evans is in here. Yeah. Um, it's pretty cool. Wow. Tony Scott. That's kind of weird. Hey, uh, why don't we do uh, the Red River address? We're running long, which I'm fine with going a little long, but I just wanted to make sure we got it in there before we... Yeah, well, you know, what do you want to say? They're they're fantastic paper, uh, lower prices than you're going to pay from uh, your printer manufacturer. Yeah. Um, and they've got pretty much every surface you can imagine and pretty much every size you can imagine, whether you want to do greeting cards or, uh, you know, 24-inch rolls. Uh, they've, they've got you covered. You know, uh, somebody wrote in last week saying that they got uh, some Red River paper. I saw that. Yeah. Uh, and I said, what kind did you get? And they said, ultra pro satin, of course. Whatever. <laughs> you, don't, you don't like that ultra pro satin? It's fine. It's fine. See, that's, that's my only paper. You, you, don't, you don't think it has any character. I think it has character. So, so what's your issue? I, I don't have an issue. I, I don't know. You you don't like you don't like uh, glossy stuff? No, I, it's it's fine. It's fine. I'm just in a matte mode, you know. Although I really ah. I, like I said, what was it last week or two weeks ago? I really dig their metallic paper. Okay. Oh That's, yeah, the metallic. I got to get some of that and try that out. Yeah, I'm I'm really tempted to buy a whole roll of that. I'm liking it so much. You know, I I descend in my 5D again to get. Yeah, what's going fixed. on with that? Well, it's uh, they should have bought a Nikon. When they repaired it. it, they basically <laughs> replaced the screen with a screen that was broken, and now they've got, like had a problem, so they got to replace the screen again. Whatever. The point is that when I sent it in, I wanted to show them what the problem was, and so I ended up printing out the problem photographically on Red River paper. That's what I was going to. Oh, say. so you wait? You sent in a print? I sent in a print with with the camera. Oh, I didn't know you sent in a print. Basically saying like, here's a picture of the back of the camera with that picture on it. Right. All looking weird, and here's what the actual picture looks like in Lightroom. You know, had them next to each other. Right. Um, Have you so heard anything? See, are they are yeah, they on it? Are they, you get it back? They're they're fixing it for free. They see the problem. Uh, they're sending it back. Hopefully today. I, I don't know. We'll see. Um, but anyway, go. So you can. There's two different things we got going on with Red River Paper. You can go try uh, a sample pack of theirs, which is usually like thirteen bucks. You can go get for seven ninety nine. 
Right. Yeah. Use. Uh, I think it's OTP kit. There you is go. The promo code. And uh, you can get that for cheap. And if you like some of the papers, and I'm sure you will, uh, if you're Jeffrey and and like things that are boring, you'll love the mat. <laughs> A dick. And wow. uh, and if you uh, if you like what is all good and right and wholesome in the world. Uh, you will buy some Ultra Pro Satin, which is my favorite. <laughs> is that it? Are, are you the purveyor of all things good, right, and wholesome now? God, I wish I was. Um, so anyway, it's uh, so if you want to go, and it, when you decide to order, I think the uh, the promo code is OTP for On Taking yep. Pictures, and uh, you'll get 10% off, yeah. which is always nice to get 10% good off. Stuff. So we thank Red River Paper for helping us out. Yeah. All right, so uh, what else we got? Hey, speaking of Ikea... <laughs> <laughs> nice segue. Oh, you like that? Yeah. Master o segue. Yeah. Uh, they're just giving up on thing? photography altogether. It, it, it's very odd, isn't it? They're, they're saying, uh, well, they're, they're, they're using CG for their catalog shoots now. Probably cheaper. Um, and, well, that's, that's their thing is they're going to save a ton of money. Um, they're saying that the, uh, they're at about 25% next year. They're at about 12% of their content is, is CG now. Yeah, and they're saying that that's going to jump to twenty five percent by next year, uh, and probably fifty percent, you know, the uh, the year beyond that. It's pretty cool. Um, I think it is. I mean, I don't. I don't think you lose anything. There's been kind of some back and forth about what's real and what's not, but I don't know. I I, I don't really see the problem in in something like this. Now, where I do see the problem, and I agree with some of the the negativity about it, is. Uh, it's going to potentially put some catalog shooters and some interior design shooters out of work. Sure, but it'll put 3D it'll put, artists. Yeah, CG artists yeah. to work. Yeah, um, I think that CG is is a weird thing because there are people who are doing art with it, like anything with photography too. There's people who are making art with photography. There are people who are documenting with photography, you know. Um, and I think a lot of what we think of as like renders, like architectural renders and stuff is more almost documenting than art where doing it at the level that they're doing this sort of like super photorealistic, like we're recreating what the photo would have looked like in this kitchen. Right. right. I mean, that stuff, I mean, these guys are good. I mean, this, yeah, is, this, this is, this is a discussion for a uh, friend of the show, uh, uh, Gary Yost. Gary Yost, who you know. Yeah. Who started uh 3d studio max back in the day. And like he, I mean, he even talks about just the crazy things that people do with it. I forget what he calls them. He calls them like, in, like monsters or insane people or or, or 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 what they're doing with his with his yeah like his the, the people who are doing things that you're just like are you kidding me like the, well and, and when he I mean the initial 3D studio stuff that was crazy DOS based yeah this is and, like yeah and then, you know you're you're doing things with command prompt right. like POV ray and things yeah. like that well when they when they started getting uh, when they did 3D studio Max for Windows. And then, uh, you know, had 386 processors and like started to, I mean, that was a revolution and that was what you have in your iPhone, you know? Sure. Or actually that's what you have in your watch. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's just amazing. So, you know what? Like it, it's, it's like that other thing you put up with the, the guy or who makes the, basically makes photorealistic drawings from right. photographs. Like ballpoint pens. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of a thing I wanted to talk to is, is the, the line between between artist and technician and, and where it's fair or valid to apply one or the other. Um, and, and, you know, we talked about it a little bit offline while this guy is incredibly technically adept. Yes. 
is that art? Is is being able to reproduce a photograph with with amazing accuracy? Uh, is it art or is that is that technique? Is yeah. that is yeah. that? It's it's it, mad technique. It's 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 he's a human photocopier, right? You know? um, and and, and we see that across multiple different disciplines. I mean, you see it yeah. people who are very technically uh, savvy as photographers, but their images have no heart. Right? They're they're technically very good. Yeah, and um, painters who do photorealistic stuff. Sure. I mean, you th- see actors who are you know able to act very well, but do they inhabit that character? Right. Yeah. There's a difference between an artist and a technician. I think that, I think that it's a mixture of the two. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, we just talked about Rousseau plates and 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 Polaroid fifty five negatives. I mean, I love technical stuff. Sure, we yeah. don't talk about it a lot on the show, just because. Like, I, I think there's a lot of. Pe- I mean, talking about that kind of sort of historical technical stuff, I think is fine for the show, just because it's not what everyone else is talking about. Sure, but we're it's, not it's, talking about the latest, greatest sensor and the new Nikon because right, right, who cares, right, right. right? There's there's billions of people talking about that. Um, I love the technical stuff, but I think that uh, there there that needs to be tempered by an artistic vision. You know, it needs to do be. You, do you, okay, do you believe that you can have one without the other? Do Do you believe that? I think that, that it's a gray area, and some people have way more of one than the other. And maybe okay. they need more of a balance. Mm-hmm. Um, my, you know, I was uh, going back and forth, emailing or texting with a friend yesterday, and uh, and uh, I'm sure he wouldn't get too mad for me uh, saying this. Uh, he said, uh, "Anybody could pick up a camera and name it at stuff. Very few people have the patience and confidence to wait for something special to happen, and then have the ability to recognize when it has happened." Sure, and I and and, and I think that 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 recognition of of the moment is is equal to knowing where to be and when to be there yes you know it kind of goes back to our 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 talks that we've had about editing sure yeah editing is a big thing i mean like uh, is there a right moment to take a picture you know i mean that's a very vague thing it's the whole decisive moment carter Bresson thing but i i don't that's that's a philosophy you could take and i mean i guess there is sort of over overarching philosophies in a lot of the stuff that we all do Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, painters are in specific schools and use specific techniques and, and whatever. Um, but I think things like this ballpoint pen is, is fascinating and masterful. But if you said, make, draw me something that is in your head and not like right in front of you is right. Cause right. all those things look like photographs and they, well, I, they almost look like they must've been worked from photographs. There was a, a a guy uh, I forget where I saw it now, but he's he's autistic, and they they flew him over New York City. Maybe you saw this. They flew him oh, over yeah, New York yeah, City yeah. in a helicopter yeah. for like twenty minutes, and and this kid redrew, you know, drew the New York City skyline from memory. Yeah, you know, and it was just incredibly accurate and detailed. Yeah, scary. Yeah, yeah. You know, and this thing is like you know twenty feet long. This this big panorama that he drew mm-hmm. from memory. Yeah. So there are people out there. I mean, is that art or is that something else? See, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, it's certainly. It's I mean, certainly it's, I think it's a type of art around as art. Yeah. Right. Um, but it, it, I guess the question is: Is there is there any translation in that? Mm-hmm. If that is a nearly perfect representation of reality. Has the artist done anything? Has they, have they imprinted their thing or have they just created a photograph? Mm-hmm. You know, 
And when I say photograph, I mean it in the, the, the documentary sense, not the... Sure. Um, but that, that's, that's the big balance, isn't it? Is, is balancing, documenting this person, place, or thing, but documenting it in a way that captures the heart, soul, or essence of that thing. Right. Yeah, I don't know. These are... It's, it's, it's difficult to give a uh, definitive answer. Mm-hmm. Because in some ways, there shouldn't be a definitive answer, right? I mean, these are all just opinions. Sure. Um, some people might say that, that exact representation of these things is exactly what art is about. You know, that, that, that is right. art. Getting, um, getting as close as humanly possible to what I saw, yes. that's the art of it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, but I don't, I don't necessarily subscribe to that. I don't know. You don't subscribe to that. I personally think that there needs to be interpretation for it to be art. If it is an exact replication of reality, then anybody could do it, right? Then it didn't matter that it was you who took that picture or drew that picture or sure, sure. wrote well, that thing. I mean, you, you, if all, you heard this. They, essentially, that's transcribing somebody's speech that sure. is not making something, you know? Well, you, you, heard, you heard the story, I'm sure, a couple of years ago about somebody adding uh, one of Cartier-Bresson's photos into a Flickr pool for uh, critique and criticism. It was the one of, of uh, the, the person riding the bicycle at the base of the stairs. Yeah, right, yeah. And, and people were just blasting it for being out of focus and, and not having <laughs> you know, great composition. And, 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 it just, and you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, wait a minute yeah. here. But do they have a point? Are we putting too much weight on the aesthetics of this photograph because it's Cartier-Bresson and not looking at should it be sharp, should it be whatever? Or, no, the, or technical, the technical stuff is fine, but the technical stuff does not define the art. Right. You know? Right. And I think that that is one of the places that – look, I like having my stuff sharp. I like having my stuff the color, blah, blah, blah. But – having all of that does not make a good photograph where having none of that could all could still be a good photograph. Sure. Sure. I think that there's a, there's an un, an un, an unfair weight. Um, Pla- placed on what placed on, on the technical perfection of an image. Uh, I think that there, there, that the, there's an unfair weight placed upon. I think that the art side of it, gets a pass the technical side of it is like oh if the art is great and the technical side if the art is great it's great somewhat irrespective of the technical stuff sometimes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where i don't think that the reverse is true you know if you have a technically perfect photograph of of the ground (laughs) you know of your foot as you're walking down the street right right it may not be art I mean that that's a vague thing as well. Sure, but, sure. You know, but 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 it doesn't it, just because it is technically good gives it no props as as an artistic photograph where something could be a photograph but not be technically good but still be a great photograph. Well, I mean, we, we've we've talked at length about some of Saul Leiter's work. Sure, and a lot mm-hmm. of his Saul stuff Leiter. is not tack sharp, but the content. The composition, the colors, yeah, are impeccable. Yeah, made by Kodak. <laughs> is that Saul Lighter or is that Kodachrome? Well, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I want to believe that it's Saul Leiter. I want to believe that it's that it's 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 the fact that you could have handed him Ectochrome or or you know thirty two ASA Panatomic X or or whatever, and he's still going to get compelling, interesting. Well, I guess the, if we saw some of Saul Leiter's recent work with his digital camera, like in that documentary, mm-hmm. I guess we could in some ways see. You know, if we compared that to his stuff from the fifties, sure. Because um, I doubt like that Saul is doing a whole lot of post production, right? Um, I don't. It's yeah. This is these are very very difficult questions, but they're good. <laughs> they're <laughs> great the, questions. Yeah this this is this is the thing. Um, yeah, you know it. It this it kind of gets into um, our photographer of the week is one of my favorites. Yeah, you called him a monster the other day. Oh, he is a monster. Uh, in fact, what it, you said something to the effect of 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 our last our photographer of the week last week was uh, Dan Winters. Yes, and you had said something about you you can look at a Dan Winters photograph and and kind of see what's going on and see how it's staged and lit, etc. Yes, but with Heisler, there are some of his photographs that they just dumbfound you. Yeah, for me, they're just so well done that I don't understand how they're done. Um, so this week's uh, photographer is Greg Heisler, um, who has been around, and you've seen a ton of his pictures. He shot lots of covers for Time magazine. Uh, you know, the, the famous picture of Bruce Springsteen on the cover of Time. He shot all the presidents for the cover of Time for, like, the man of the year. He used to shoot that kind of stuff all the time. That mm-hmm. picture of... Bono and uh, Bill Gates and Melinda Gates. I don't know if you ever. The, yeah, the big the big trifold wraparound one. Yeah, with the yeah. with the with the uh, globe. I think in the picture, some kind of stupid mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a classic picture of uh, Rudy Giuliani sitting uh, standing on like the top of like uh, Thirty Rock, like on the edge of a building that's right, like right. really beautifully lit. Yeah, like, that's a time cover too, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He does. Lo- he's done a ton of time covers and. Um, He's yeah, he's he's a monster. He's been around forever and I just love his work. Um he there's a bunch of videos online that sort of show where he kind of talks about how he does it with his like little round, you know, Harry Potter glasses on, right? Uh, with his bow tie and looking all very Greg Heisler. Um Yeah. Reminds me of Chip Kid. Chip Kid has a similar yes, style. Yes, he does look like Chip Kid. Chip Kid who uh did an interview with Neil Gaiman the night I shot Neil Gaiman. Huh. Anyway, um the but the the fascinating thing there there's an interview. The reason why he sort of came up this week is that there was a great interview on some site where oh uh, a photoeditor.com had an interview right. with Greg Heisler, and there's this uh, picture of uh, some basketball player. Who is it? It's uh, uh um who's who's the big famous guy? Uh, James. You're, wait, you're asking me about basketball? LeBron, LeBron James. And apparently they were originally going to shoot him with the trophy, I guess the NBA championship trophy. Okay. Which has like a big, essentially like this big giant chrome globe on it or or a gold globe. So he had to have super, super soft light beyond just a softbox and beyond just like an octobank. So he put up a 12 foot roll of white background paper, right? Okay, so what you would use as a background just, right. just for like a portrait, like right. an Avedon type and of portrait. And normally you would do nine foot is pretty okay. wide. This is 12 foot, so it's even the wider stuff. 
Okay. He then, but he didn't shoot, bounce off the white. He shot through the white paper. Nice. So he had, and in front, apparently, it was essentially like F4. That's how um, much light was getting through. On the back, he was just like, it was like F90. <laughs> like, wow. That, that, that it, it's essentially opaque white paper. Sure. That you're so just blasting light through. He was just blasting it with strobes to get just enough light to come through. And it was so incredibly soft because it was 12 feet across. Wow. Um, and so there's this really nice picture of LeBron James for this was for Sports Illustrated. And he mm. talks about how a lot of times he's doing these shoots for these magazines where he actually just has to send the photos from on set because they need them like within minutes because they have to put it to print. Oh, wow. Um, uh, and that that that. Yeah, it's just it's just kind of crazy. Um, it's 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 kind of cool. He's he used to shoot eight by ten a lot. Uh, Heisler, uh, but now he started shooting. I think five D. Hmm. Um, but he he also says that you know people should pe- people want Platon, they want William Coupon, they want they want to know what you're going to get. Art directors want a sure thing, is what he says. Right, 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 right. Um, which I think is a great quote. God, this uh, set of miners on his website is insane. Yeah, he's 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 just a monster now. I, I saw he's doing a workshop in New Mexico, I want to say. Yeah. I think it's a th- it's $1,000 for two days, maybe. I don't know. Might be worth it. Well, I don't have $2,000. But, you know, it just, it's just interesting, man. Uh, what, yeah, that, what, it, that it's affecting even somebody. Yeah. Yeah, well, he says, uh, were you an early adopter of digital? And he said, no, I went along kicking and screaming. <laughs> digital held no romance for me at all. I hated it. I miss my big cameras, the working process. I miss it. But he says, I, I, I pretty much put a clothespin on my nose and took a plunge and it's amazing, but it's weird to be on the far side of that learning curve. If you know how to use, if you, you know how to use a Deerdorf, you know how to use every eight by 10 camera, but if you use a five D and then a five D Mark two, each one is a little bit different. They use different focus points, the switching from aperture to Lightroom. You have to learn all new stuff. It's a constant learning curve that I hadn't signed on for. Uh, Interesting. I want to grow in terms of making pictures, not adapting to new software and technology, but that's the right. game now. Right. Well, I mean, Timothy Greenfield Sanders, has he gone digital or is he still using only big cameras? Um, he shoots 8x10. He does sometimes shoot uh, medium format uh, like Hasselblad mm-hmm. from what I understand. But, but I don't think he he doesn't do his own post. He has people who do that. Okay. So he's sort of essentially like doing it like the old days. He's just shooting it and handing it to somebody. Right. Um, wow. Interesting. I mean, even even that process of of Greenfield Sanders and Heisler of here's the photograph. My job is done. Essentially, you know, do with it what you will. Yeah. That's so foreign to so many photographers now who are not only lighting, shooting, post-processing, but, you know, like we've talked many times, social media directors and marketing people, and that, that's, they are their own sort of one-stop shop. Yeah. And, you know, what? there's difference because with a guy like him, I think he took much more time, or does take much more time. Um, uh, he takes much more time lighting it the way he wants it to look exactly. 
Mm-hmm. So it's not like, oh, I know what it's going to look like on this film with this lighting and I can just hand it to you. It's not like, oh, it's all on there and then I can play with the highlights and the shadows later. Right, 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 right. He's doing that all and, on and the, is, on, in camera. Is he, this, is he similar to Winters in that respect? I mean, do you think, do you think Dan Winters is, is process-wise as, as technically and aesthetically, I'm going to say, responsible for getting it in as much as possible in camera? Uh, I, I would say so. I feel like maybe Winters is a little bit more um, of a pragmatic technician, where I think Heisler is a little more of a... Um, I mean, I think he's a technician, but I think he's a little bit more magical about it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I think he, he watching him work would feel a little bit more like watching somebody write a piece of music versus transcribing a piece of music. Okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, not that Winters isn't coming up with original the alchemy stuff. Of, of photography. Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. very, he's, he knows where he's putting his lights and everything like that, but he's, it's not quite as techy somehow Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. i don't know how to put that but um and i don't have any real reason to believe that other than it just feels that way um just by looking at the work yeah yeah yeah. he's he's he is um he's one of my favorites i like that uh greg heisler but uh he's good uh we got anything else i think i'm good anything else you got uh you know we can we can save the uh comparison thing till next week Okay. Yeah. Because I want I want to talk about that, but with too much tech stuff. That's today. that's going to be a discussion. Yeah, that could be interesting. Yeah. Uh, feedback. Send us feedback. We love feedback. Podcast at ontakingpictures dot com is where you can send feedback to Jeffrey and myself. And hey, did uh, we get any any voicemail? Did anybody use the the phone number? Uh, I don't know that anybody did, and I'm very upset about it. So give us a call. What's the number? Uh, it is. Three four seven six eight seven. There it is. Ninety four eleven. Yeah. Three four seven OTP ninety four eleven. There you go. Um, yeah. Leave us a note. Say hi. Or leave us a message and say hi. Uh, we love the emails. Uh, we love Twitter comments. I'm at Bill Wadman, and you're at uh, Jeffrey Sidoris on yep. Twitter. E R Y double D one R. Correct. And uh, and this is exciting. Yeah, this is good. Uh, thank you for listening. We, we're, we are absolutely enjoying all the feedback and all the emails. And, and, uh, and go, seems leave, like, go leave a message on the, on the iTunes store. Yeah, do that. That's good. Review, rating. We've got, we've got uh, several ratings and uh, reviews since last week. And people, people seem to like the show. They seem to like the we're show. We're at an average of five stars, which is pretty sweet. That's pretty fun. Yeah, so thank you for that. I, yeah. I really like And if you've got suggestions, uh, you know, it's not just feedback. If you've got suggestions for something you'd like us to bring up or talk about or, or a suggestion for a photographer of the week, uh, you know, l- shoot us an email or leave a voicemail at the, uh, at the, the number. Excellent. Yeah. Anything else? Nope, I'm good. All right, then we will see you all next week. Yep.